0: Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Well, Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. A very special guest today, Mr. Richard Pryor, Jr., the son of a marvelous comic, as you all remember but also a singer, performer, actor, and now author, in his own right, a person who is a Renaissance man in 2019. Welcome to Seldom Said, Richard. Thank you for having
1: me, Robert. Appreciate it.
0: It's our pleasure, I can assure you. I wonder if we can start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place.
1: Well, I'm, uh, as you mentioned earlier for the intro, you know, I'm a son of Richard Pryor, the comedian, Um, Myself with my life, it took me a few years to get to where I am now, a place of um, uh, comfortability, um, solace, um, and growth. It took for me to get to where I am now. I'm um, originally from Peoria, Illinois. I was born in 1962 at two pounds, three ounces. So I had like a quite of a a challenge, you know, growing up and everything with, you know, health issues and things of that nature, Um, but I've found myself to be strong and resilient in my life, and um, I'm here standing now as, you know, as as an author for the first time, but also as a um, performer who just loves performing. Um, I love life, and that's my reason for moving to New York City to further my career in the entertainment industry.
0: So you have a birthday just two months away. Do yeah, you tend, uh, Do you tend to celebrate those moments, or are you glad in a sense you're thinking of tomorrow and not yesterday?
1: Well, this year I'm celebrating my birthday with a uh, uh, mini book tour. I'm going to probably about seven or eight cities in the uh, Midwest or in the area where I'm from and places where I've lived or, or been there for an extended period of time. So my birthday will be uh, in my hometown of Peoria, Illinois, Meeting my family and friends and doing a book signing there. So I'm very excited about that.
0: I must ask a, a question I've posited to other authors on this program. When you write a book about personal experience and family, do you self edit?
1: Uh, yes, I, I do. I, self edit, but also, you know, it's, it's a very, um, going through that process is very, at times, can be very difficult and very strenuous on you and things of that nature. I, I learned to, in that part of my life as far as dealing with writing the book, to put a lot of my feelings aside, the way I was feeling and emotions, putting those aside just to try to get a book to tell my truth. It was um, I share a lot about what I've gone through out in during my life as far as the pain and the struggles, but also trying to show the triumphs and victories as well to try to make a balanced book.
0: You're sharing so many things that can be categorized as intimacies. Are you still a man who relishes secrets, or is everything out there to be noticed, touched, and felt?
1: Well, I I pretty much was, in this book, I was pretty open to my life and the things I've gone through and the things I've done, good and bad. I think I followed uh, a guideline that was given to me uh, uh, by my father as far as his comedy, how he spoke his truth and spoke his life, but it made people laugh, at it made people think. So that's the same kind of message I wanted to convey in my book as far as being open and honest and sharing all that I could share about me and my life and my experiences and how I viewed certain things that I went through and struggled through with my life.
0: Is there any point or privilege of advice that your father shared with you that you in turn hope to share with a son or a child? Is this something that was not superfluous but long-lasting?
1: Well, I think as far as my life, I do have a son that's 28 years old. Um, So the things I learned from my father as far as besides the things that he's gone through, he stood strong and was resilient. And I think those are the things and the, the characteristics I would love to pass on, and hopefully I pass on to my son, that no matter what you've gone through in life, no matter what your struggles are, and no matter what your demons are, that you can come out of that, and you can come out of that darkness into life, so that's the thing you lose. The, the main purpose of me writing my book is showing for people that may have gone through similar things I've gone through and have struggled, that they were able to see a way out and see hope besides all the things they've gone through in their life.
0: What do you feel is more imperative in the life message than learning from what people do, or learning from what they shouldn't have done?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think, um, I think if you look back on probably learning what you uh, shouldn't have done, you know, but also in the, in the second sense, as far as the, uh, your life story and things like that, a lot of things that you go through in life, a lot of those hardships and things that you go through actually make you stronger in the in the long run. So going through those things, if you're going through something and you're still going through something, always being able to look ahead and seeing light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how dark it looks, that darkness is behind you and steps constantly go for the light that you see in front of you.
0: Is life still a surprise for you, Richard?
1: Yeah, life is full of surprises. I think when life isn't, there are no longer, um, Surprises in life, I think he seems to exist. Um, we should always look for something and learning something new and hearing something that we never heard before and going through something that we've never gone through before. I think that's a part of our life and a part that keeps us vital in this world.
0: Judging that you've experienced now pretty soon uh, 57 some odd years on this planet, there were a series of questions put out by the American Academy of Dramatic Arts The last question is, if you appear at the Curly Gates, how would you like God to welcome you? Judging the diverse life you've had, Richard, the ups, the downs, the goods, the bads, how would you like to be welcomed to that eternal reward?
1: I would say, because I know where I stand now spiritually with God and in my life, and my daily walk with God, um, the scriptures say, good and well my faithful servant. Those are the things I want to hear. Um, you know, you made it through the, the test. You passed the test. You passed the storms. You made it through. You knew there was light ahead of you. Um, so those are the things that I want to, would wish and hope that God would do for me at, at, the, at, the, at the pearly gates. That he'd say, yeah, you struggled. you've gone through, but you hear you're standing and you're strong. And you worship and you serve me. So I think those are important things.
0: Your family? your parents, your father, expressly, were they aware of the fact that you'd come out the other side healthy and well and you were pursuing a formative career? Were they aware of your success?
1: No, they weren't. Unfortunately, my mother passed two years prior to my father at 59 years old of cancer, and then my father, of course, in 2005. They never got to see um, the new me, so to speak. Um, But in that... The whole process of losing my parents, especially my mother, I always tell people that my mother's death gave me life. Because of my mother passing, it made me get out of my comfort zone. and made me need to do things that I wasn't comfortable with, moving to places I would never been, and learning how to live, finally, and not have to depend on someone else to carry me and to coddle me and to be there with me. I had to learn those things on my own, so that was the strength that I gained. From losing both my parents.
0: We always say that the father and the mother should mentor the son or daughter. Do you feel that in turn the son can mentor the parent?
1: I believe so. I believe, uh, you know, especially when you know your parents or whatever have gone through some darkness in their life and gone through some issues in their life, and maybe they're still struggling with those things in their life. You being the person where you are, if you're strong and you're determined, you that and you know what you want out of life. I think there's no problem with having that issue of being able to share with your parent the strength that you have and what you've learned in your life because we're all human beings. none of us are perfect and I think those are the things that we need to give to each other. not just because they're younger than us or older than us, we should have, we should have been to impart um, life to people and to speak truth to people so that people may see people because a lot of times when you're going through something, You're sitting back and you don't realize what you're going through. And you don't realize the the demons and the things that are around you that are encircling and encamping themselves around about you. You don't realize that. And sometimes it takes that person from the outside to be able to show you this is what's happening, this is what you're going through.
0: There's that marvelous quote attributed to John Kennedy, probably apocryphal perhaps, but he was asked about someone he disliked intensely who had hurt his family, and he said... uh, I forgive my enemies, but I remember their names. Do you believe in forgiveness?
1: Oh, I definitely believe in forgiveness. It's not that you uh, don't realize what that person's done in your life, but I think we owe it to give people another opportunity in life. And it doesn't mean that you are always around that person, you're always conversating with that person. It means I'm forgiving you for me, for me, for myself, for my growth, for my spiritual growth or to make myself strong, to make myself a better person. Because a lot of times when we're not forgiving people, those people have gone around gone on about their lives and their business. They're not even remember how they remember how they hurt us or don't even
0: know that they did hurt us.
1: So those are things we have to do, learn to forgive and then move forward in life.
0: If I were to ask you to attribute an epiphanal moment in your life, that Damascus moment when suddenly there was a light going in a different direction and your changes became evident, your steps went away. Is there such a moment that you remember that stands out amongst all the others? Um, I would have
1: to say the process of going through my mother's death. Um, Prior to her dying, I tried to take my life. And I, you know, took a bunch of pills and drank a lot of alcohol. And, you know, two days later, I woke up in ICU with impotent a bit later out of my throat for breathing. Um, I think going through that and then going through my mother's death uh, probably about a year after that, that gave me strength because a lot of times we go through things in life and don't think we can handle it, don't think we can make it, and don't see uh, light at the end of the tunnel whatsoever you couldn't have told me back then that I would still be standing here today and stronger as a person for going through those things that I actually went through.
0: If anyone, and one hopes that perhaps they are not, if anyone is listening and really feels that elemental shadow of despair, would your advice to them be that leaving is not an option?
1: My advice would be leaving is definitely not an option. There's more to life than what you're seeing right at this moment that you're going through. There is brightness past what you're going through. It's not always darkness. I mean, you may weather the storm and going through the storm, but knowing that those storms end eventually, and sooner or later that light's going to come out and it's going to be bright and it's going to pick you up. That's how I look at people like him, even during the winter months, especially in the, you know, the cold, uh, cold regions of the United States how a lot of people, the depression level is lower and everything because of darkness and also being in the cold and all those things you go through and how your mind wanders and thinks and you're in despair and you feel destructive. But being able to know, hey, if this person made it through it, I can make it through it. If this person can see some light after the things they've gone through and the struggles they've gone through, keep going on that road. Keep moving forward. Keep, keep the strip on you. Keep the bad things off your back. Learn to shake some things off in your life that shouldn't be a part of your life.
0: That reminds me of that marvelous quote from Winston Churchill. During the war, he was asked about bad times. And his response was interesting. He said, when you're going through hell, just keep going. Is that basically what you're telling the listening audience, that you may not solve the issue, but try to get out the other side?
1: Oh, definitely. Keep going. Keep going no matter what. Keep hope alive, as you heard before. Uh, keep going, no matter the darkness that you're seeing, that you're in, in and you're engulfed in that, keep walking. We may not see how to step in front of us, but we all got to have that faith to know that when we put our feet down, it's going to be on solid ground. And so you keep moving, one moment at a time, not just one day at a time, but one moment at a time to keep moving forward.
0: So many individuals, whether poet or writer or child, takes the position that he can't put an emotion into words. If I were to give you then that word hope, can you give me a sentence or a synonym that says it all for you that's on the page of your book?
1: Uh, Hope is encouragement, is strength, It's life. It's also love. It's understanding the path that you're on at that moment and that time. And knowing that each time you go forward, that gets better, the hope is better for you and and it will give you life those things give you actual life. so staying in that moment, doing what you're doing, realizing that you have love around you and yet people around you, you have that some strength that you have around you, and seeking those things daily It's
0: well said, I would wonder. In your book, you describe so many pitfalls that you've stepped into, tripped over, and lost your way in. One that preeminently comes to the fore is the issue of sexual abuse. We live in a time of heightened sensitivity, politically, emotionally, socially, academically, in movies, and theater. Your views on sexual abuse, is it past or prologue? Most psychologists feel that the individual responsible cannot be reformed, cannot be forgiven. What are you, your views on the entire circumstance?
1: Well, the thing on sexual abuse, I think you have to get to a point to look at yourself before you look at anybody else. You know, no matter what people have done to you, how you've been abused, how are you going to let that dictate your life? Are you going to let that thing control your life? How can I get past that, uh, what this person did to me, that hurt and that pain that that person caused me? How can I get past that for me? Because if we stay in that, those things that we've gone through, those are going to be a, a constant detriment to us, to our existence, to our being, to our growth. Those things are going to constantly beat us over the head because we've never dealt with them. And a lot of times, you know, when it's time to deal with certain things, those people may have gone and passed on and everything else throughout life. But for your own sanity, for your own peace of mind, for your own spiritual growth, being able to let those things go and let it loose and, and know that I'm better than this, I'm better than the problem I've been through and I'm better than the problem I'm going through, that I can, I got this, I have this, with the faith, with the faith of God and knowing who's in charge. I think
0: that's most important. If you were to encounter an individual who was responsible for such a heinous act and he apologized or she apologized, would you accept their apology? Yes, I
1: would. I actually would accept their apology. Um, Apologies don't come easy for some people. Apologize for things that we've done and how we've hurt someone. But I think if someone's genuine and they're... in in their comments and in their choices as far as speaking with you and saying, I'm sorry, you have that obligation to forgive because you're looking at, what's it going to do to me? It's not so much for that other person, but it's for yourself. That person has to answer to God for the things they've done. I can't judge that person any longer because I'm walking in truth and know what the truth is. So I have to be able to say to that person, I forgive you. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be around them every day and, you know, have them for dinner all the time and that type of adversary. But I have to, for my conscience and for my my well-being, I have to let that stuff go.
0: Well, Whitman often wrote that he loved the entire world. He loved everyone. He embraced everyone. And yet some of his most poignant lines are written when he works as a medic, as an intern, so to speak, during the Civil War. Do you feel that you would be the writer that you are, if not for the pain? No, I don't.
1: I I think that, you know, know, I I had to go through some things in life and not just go through those things, but I had to learn from those things. I think that was most important, me learning from those struggles and the things that I went through. Why did I go through this? Why did I do this? Why was I detrimental to my own self? Why did I abuse my own body? Why did I do these things? So I think those things are important to know as far as, like, yourself when you're going through something and, the, you know, the struggles that you're having. What did I do and what can I do to change that outlook that I have on myself? Because I think that's most important because if you don't have a great outlook on yourself, no one else is going to see your strengths. No one else is going to see how you are. No one else is going to see the new you. So walking in that truth all the time.
0: So I take it you're a strong believer in the acceptance of personal difference, who you are, what you are, when you live, and what you do, your premise, your choice.
1: Definitely. You know, we all have our own choice. And uh, that's like even, you know, in Christianity. You know, God gives us a choice. And he's a perfect gentleman. And he doesn't force anything on you that you don't want. So I think that's the same things we go through in life. No matter what they are, we, we have to choose whether or not we Are going to accept that person? Are we going to accept that situation? But also in accepting that, how can I change this? How can I make myself better? How can I do better within life for myself? Because it's, it's all about you. And uh, for those things, that's where you're able to branch out and you're able to love everyone for who they are. Not trying to change anyone, but showing love, showing compassion to that person is very important.
0: Do you then, Richard, feel that the perfect attitude of a parent would have been to look at your circumstance and allow you to experience in the hope that you will positively come out the other side. Or is the choice to demand a righteous reaction to a threatening premise?
1: Well, I think with a child, you're dealing with a lot of things as far as like, you know, they're growing up and everything. Sure, you have to uh, uh, mentor them. You have to show them the right way and the wrong way when they're younger. Show them the difference between right and wrong. When that child gets older, that child tends to have, and i speaking from experience of myself, that child as a teenager. You go through that process of thinking that you know everything, that you know right from wrong, and you'll never have any pitfalls, and life is always uh, shining, and there's roses all the time. You can smell roses all the time, but there's things that we go through in life that even though our parents tell us not to, there's, it's like telling a parent telling the child, don't touch that stove, it's hot that child still does it until they experience that for themselves. Someone's telling them that they're not going to know that for a fact. So I think of the things that we go through and we struggle and the pain that we're in as a, as a child and everything, those things should make us stronger, and we know not to do those things again. But I think that parent should be there, a supportive parent, not, not saying that I'm going to allow you to do the drugs, allow you to do that, but that parent knowing they have a place where they can still have love unconditionally.
0: I remember seeing a performance of your late father, and he seemed to be a kaleidoscope of emotions and personalities. He was funny, he was witty, he was odd. He was (laughs) scurrilous on occasion. And then midway through it, he became very serious and saluted Huey Newton in the audience. If you had to describe your dad and his personality... Can you put that into words? And then can you place him as a reflection of your mother? Can you compare them both, strengths and weaknesses? Well,
1: my my father, which you saw on stage was Richard Pryor, the entertainer and performer. A lot of things that people didn't see was the real Richard Pryor, the Richard Pryor that was a little shy, that was an introvert, that was quiet, very soft-spoken, as well as my mother, was was uh, very soft-spoken. My mother took a lot of abuse throughout her life and her marriages. Um, I think a lot of that was the cause of her not knowing her self-worth and knowing that she was stronger than what she was, that what she saw and what she was going through. And I think those things in life as far as uh, hoping that people learn from those things that they're going through. But my dad, his whole thing was uh, I saw the dad that no one else saw. I saw the dad that didn't crack jokes all the time. I saw the dad that was serious and the dad that was quiet and the dad that even in his death wouldn't have understood the power of who he was as an artist and seeing the accolades and things that people bestowed upon him. I think he would have been extremely humbled by it, but surprised by it as well.
0: When your dad spoke of race he was deep, he was poetic, he was Langston Hughes. Do you have the same strength of feeling toward pigment and color that he did, especially in our atmosphere today?
1: Well, I, I've never been a person that looked at that. Um, I don't know because of the way I was raised, my mother and uh, the way she raised me. Um, I've never looked at that as far as color or anything of that nature. And then men in New York City, you see every nationality, every race, everything, ethnicity here in this city. So being open to embrace other people, I think, is the most important thing in your life. You know, speaking sticking with the same person, the same people all the time, I don't think it's always healthy. I think it's healthy to know other people, know other cultures, know other people, know the ways of life, the way people live. And to be, embraced, to be able to embrace everyone, and to show everyone love and compassion.
0: Did you feel love and compassion for the homeless man who entered your space before the program began?
1: Yes, I actually did. Um, I've I've seen like people like during you know things of that nature, especially here in the city, that are just rude to people who are going through maybe they have they're homeless or and they maybe have mental issues or something like that. It doesn't take much to smile at somebody or just to say hello to somebody. So I think those are important things that we need to know. Some, sometimes if you smile at somebody, it may brighten their day. They may, they may have needed that smile because they may have been going to, in a way of you know, trying to take their lives during that time. So I think it's important to just be nice to people. It doesn't take much energy out of your life to be nice to someone. It takes more energy to be negative and hateful.
0: I know that... Some of those circumstances uh, are difficult to discern. By the way, there was a loud bang in the background. I'm hoping that nothing fell within proximity of you.
1: Actually, quite away. way, I heard a door quite the way. I see.
0: I know that uh, within the past week, I found myself uh, dealing with some of the same issues. I think we all have the same approaches to problems if we sublimate them or we have them out front but I did end up buying coffee at a Starbucks for the immigrant gentlemen outside who were emptying the garbage on a very cold morning. And the reaction was not too conducive to feeling at ease. The reaction seemed to be amongst other customers and the priors that we should uh, mind our own business, buy your coffee, drink your coffee, and stay within your own. What advice do you give to those we see who step over hardship rather than embrace it?
1: Oh, my God. First of all, I think that's very hard. Um, this is a very hard answer, like step over that and ignore it. I think that's the problem now that we're having in our communities of always stepping over something and act like we don't see it when it's right there in front of our face. So I think it's always important to be that person Maybe nobody else do it. But if you're that person, maybe that's going to give somebody else some hope to do something that's in the I just think it's horrible to just ignore when you're capable of doing something so small in life.
0: Do you consider yourself an activist? You certainly sound like one. I'm a product of the 60s. Many in the listening audience are. Some of the young people wish they were and hope to bring that premise into their own lives. But do you posit yourself as a man who promotes change?
1: Yeah, I do, actually. I've worked with several organizations. Um, one was the Friend Movement, which is an anti-bullying movement I actually worked with. And I even noticed myself on certain things, even in social media, I'm aware of things that I post and things that could be really negative and detrimental to somebody. I always try to think first before I act. and those are things that are really important. A lot of times we go through life and we're busy and we don't think of things and we may do something or say something that wasn't meant in the way that it was received. And we have to be really mindful of that. And I'm very mindful of that now, working with several organizations, whether it's uh, um, certain movements, whether it's LGBTQ community, whether it's the African-American community, whatever I'm seeing something as far as people that are being caused pain and injustice, I want to be a part of it if I can in some kind of way, uh, no matter how uh, minute it is.
0: Are you one then who acquiesces and discusses and ties to bring a person to your premise and position? Or do you feel there's a time to raise one's hand in defense of one's own?
1: I think for me, um, a lot of times in life, we, we, we go through what we go through in life and we may see certain things, and we may have a mindset that, oh, that's not affecting me. I shouldn't say something, or it doesn't, no, it doesn't, it's not affecting my life. It's not affecting who I am, uh, but I think a lot of times, and that's where we're missing our opportunities and our opportunities to speak and speak up and to be the good person that we are and to be a better person for it. It may not affect me, but I've got to stand up and say something. I've got to speak on this. I've got to say this is wrong. No, you're treating that person wrong. You're not treating that person right. Or, are you doing this to this person, you shouldn't do that. We have to do that. We have to learn to do that. And it's a process of learning by daily as you go through the things that you go through. Where, you, where can I stand? Where can I be a person of importance? Where can I speak for the person who has no voice?
0: Obviously, you're a multifaceted personality. Some of the ideas you present are here, there, and everywhere in the spectrum of human behavior. We've talked about your mother and father. Can you share some opinions and feelings and memories of your grandmother?
1: Oh, Well, on my dad's side, it was my great-grandmother who I was around most of the time. Um, She didn't have the best background in life as far as uh, upbringing. And I think a lot of times, even regarding my father, when he was raising us, his children, I think a lot of things that he thought was was showing love and compassion and all that, Mm -hmm. Was in a monetary, a fashion, and I think those are the things that he lacked because he didn't have that. So I think the thing now, the the, the things the things that we actually seeing as far as what we're going through, is learning, being able to um, go through those things, and to um, you know see people for what they're worth and everything, you know. And then my uh, uncle going through, you know, my not my uncle but my you know my father on my mother's side. You know, you're dealing with alcoholism at home and on my side, you know, how can I get past? How can we see the strengths in somebody for that? But I think everybody is there. We are our own worst enemy when it comes down to it, uh, being able to do certain things uh, as far as the life of things we go through and the struggles we've gone through. But how can I glean from that person something? You know, my mother's family, on my side, I show life and love with them and compassion with them. So... We have to look at the best things out of everybody and what they have to offer and how they can
0: show love to us. Someone whose name really isn't that important, a person famous in very public life, said that the most difficult part of his life was going from the glitter to the gutter. How did you balance this ephemeral experience you had of good times, bad times, horror? Ooh, that's a really good one.
1: I think that, which I even spoke to earlier about, you know, seeing your self-worth and knowing your self-worth, you know, being in that gutter at the lowest point in your life. Of course, you look back and like, you know, how did I end up here? How am I in this position? How am I in this place? But we have to learn those things that we're going through and internalize those things. and Why? What made me go here? What? What made me do that drug? What what made me, what was that, where was I at in my head to do that? What was so weak in me at that time that I felt I had to cave in to do that? Where was my mind at at during that actual time? Where was I at? How could I change myself to make myself a better person? How am I going to climb out of this? What do I have to do in order to make myself strong, in order to be able to see that I can get better than this? And so I think those are the things we learn in life and have to learn and try to learn it's not saying we're not going to have pitfalls or mistakes or anything of that nature. But I was better for my life. How can I do that? What do I have to do to take that next step forward, to climb out of, that, out of the muck and miry clay?
0: Quite a while ago, I asked a scholarly colleague who had flirted with drugs, what was the rationale? Why did he do it? And his response was, it was like being accepted at Harvard every day. You inherited an addictive personality. What advice would you give to those who experience the same premise? What advice did your dad give to you?
1: Well, actually, I didn't really see much advice from my dad regarding that because during that time when I was indulging, he was also fighting his demons in regards to that. I think what I learned out of it is... Looking back on your life and knowing why you're doing what you're doing. Because there's always a reason why you're doing what you're doing. There's always a reason why you want to forget something. Because, truth be told, when you're doing the drugs, you don't have to think about anything. Your mind doesn't wander about anything. You're just in a thing where your mind is just totally relaxed and there's nothing there at all. You're not thinking about anything other than getting high. So all those pitfalls, all those struggles you're going through, all the hurt and pain you're going through, all that things, all those things subside during the time when you're actually high. And you have to know that once you're doing that, when you come out of being high, those problems are still there, those issues are still there. So you have to learning how to deal with those issues and what I'm ha- what's happening to my life, why am I doing this, and learning those things and making those things a part of your life to make yourself stronger and knowing those things. I think that's
0: really important to do that. Your story posits the premise that movie sets on occasion, especially given your experience, can be hotbeds of temptation in regard to drugs and so forth. Can you speak to the specific issue and problem of working on such a movie set?
1: Yeah, well, it's really you got drugs that are rampant, you know, especially like cocaine, those things that you're seeing rampant. Because people, a lot of people during those times still may have to do it for the energy because of the long hours and what they're going through as far as the workday and all those things. Um, so you see it on a regular basis and daily basis. But you have to also fall back and know who you are. You know, I can be around certain things, but no, I can't indulge in those things. That's not who I am now. I know for my sanity and, and to be strong for myself, I can't fall into that pitfall. Because if I fall into that pitfall, it's going to be really hard for me to get out because of the addictive personality of my life and the things that I've gone through. So you've got to know who you are and know that you're stronger than that situation, that moment that you're in. Sometimes you just have to say no, and you've got to know when to say no.
0: Your dad, uh, in one of his documentary performances, Jojo Dancer, has a chilling monologue where he speaks to his pipe and he talks to his pipe as if it were a lover and some sort of angelic premise that he has to embrace in order to be creative. Since you have stepped away from that life, Richard, what do you use to be creative?
1: Well, I think in my thing it's just knowing who I am as a person. My spiritual growth is utmost important. My relationship with God, because without the relationship I falter. So knowing where my my strengths are knowing who's there for me, knowing that I do have a comforter there for me, that I have someone there that's going to always pick me up when I'm not even feeling like it, I know where I can get that strength in, where I can, you know, pick it up that Bible and reading some pages in the Bible and reading some scriptures to just to give me some strength so I can go on throughout the day and so I can move forward. Putting my music on, my gospel music on especially, putting it on and just listening to the message that's being brought through for the words of that song. Those things give me strength to keep it going.
0: Who do you listen for in a gospel choir? Whose voice reminds you of where you'd like to be vocally?
1: Um, there's an artist who passed away a few years ago. His name is Daryl Coley. And I think that his voice, uh, it really resonates with me. And I really feel the, the words that he actually sings and um, the passion he has and the love for Christ he has. Those, that's somebody who I, I, I love, love his songs and I love to emulate those songs and his voice and what he can do because his voice definitely speaks to the people.
0: It would sound that your epiphanal moment was purely spiritual. What brought you to this intensity of belief or was it always there simply in a sublimated form?
1: Well, it was there uh, years ago. I was, uh, you know, was in the ministry and in church and all the stuff. I was speaking as an evangelist and things like that nature when I was married. And, you know, I fell out and, you know, after my mother died and all this stuff, I said I would never go back to church or anything of that nature. It would never be a part of my life. And my ex-wife has a church in uh, Pennsylvania, and we had some people that came from Illinois who I knew that used to be in our old church who were there, and I knew those people. So I went to the church service. Um, thinking I'm just there visiting to help out a little bit, and I never left. that was a, almost two years ago, and I never left the church after that. So it was like right then it was like a was like an aha moment. Something you said you would never do, and you're right back in it because I I didn't realize how much I missed it and being a part of it. And right now, my ex-wife, a lot of people can't say this, but my ex-wife is my pastor. And uh, it, it's a great thing, and it shows you, it shows the testament of God, how God can move in people's lives, how people who couldn't stand each other, and now you're underneath that person, you know, helping serve the ministry and helping serve in Christ.
0: The Buddha spoke beneath a tree, Christ spoke on the mountain. Moses came down with his tablets. Islam is always based on the premise of the Hijra from Mecca to Medina. We all use the word church, mosque, synagogue. How would you define church? What is your church, Richard?
1: Well, I, I think that will, the body of Christ is in you as a part of you. I think church, to me, is a place where people who are like you fellowship and worship together Um, in his sanctuary. That's where we come together to get our minds together, get our thoughts together, realign ourselves with the, the purpose of God. That's what church is for me.
0: So you literally feel that you can posit a prayer with anyone at any time in any place? Oh, of course.
1: If I don't believe in the power of prayer, why am I doing what I'm doing? I have to know that there's
0: power in prayer
1: It's not always that you're going to get what you want, but
0: you'll get what you need. There is one incident that appears in the resumes of your life and the articles that have been written, and that's the incident in Los Angeles where you're on the roof of a car and you'd reached, really, rock bottom. Can you rationalize that moment in your own mind today, or is it just something that another person did?
1: Uh... I The only thing I can rationalize about it is that it shows you the, the power of that particular drug I was doing and how it takes you to a place that you never thought you would go. And that's the way that was because those are things, even the, the way I am today with myself and whether it's my body or not, the way I'm, uh, I'm quiet and I'm really kind of an introvert, to do something of that nature shows that I wasn't in that right frame of mind, that something else bigger than me was in control and allowed me to do what I did.
0: Once again, a colleague who I had earlier on the program, who is now a mental health advocate, mentioned that he hit his low point when he stood on a corner in Manhattan in the rain and screamed on top of his lungs that he was the second coming of Jesus Christ. When you think about some of the things that have happened in your life, and you think about the rationale life that you're giving to each day today, where is the difference? Where is the change? Or do you fear stepping back into the shadows?
1: No, I don't fear stepping back into the shadows. You know, I think it goes along with what I've said previously, you know, knowing my worth, knowing who I am as a person knowing that i have much to give and much to offer this world and so that doesn't those things don't stay in my head they're not a part of who i am that was a person who was trying to not be around any longer um, who was not happy with who they were and not happy with life and struggling with that and all those things that go with it so the person that stands here today is a totally different person um and I can't constantly look back and say, what if this happens if I do this? I've got to know my faith and know that I can keep going forward and I don't have to look back. That, not saying that I don't know it wasn't there, it's that I can't let that be a, a main uh, focus in my life.
0: There are many that you've known along the way, obviously, and there are many that you have been a mentor to in the same circumstance. One such name that continually comes up uh, in any reading of your life story to this point is Marty Fisher. Can you describe the relationship, what he did or did not do for you?
1: Well, Marty was re- really nice. I first met him in Las Vegas right after my father had passed. And uh, they had the, uh, you know, the comedy, New York, I mean, the, not New York, the uh, International Comedy Festival there. So I was there and they presented my father with a flag. And then the improv in New York City was doing an event, New York uh, uh, Comedy Festival, was doing an event at the old improv. And they wanted me to be a guest, so I, Marty flew me out to be a guest. And he wanted me to do a comedy set, and I said, no, I don't do comedy anymore, like but I'll sing a song. And I sang a song, and uh, the crowd went crazy with the song. So Marty was cheaper for because our flights were messed up. It was cheaper for Marty to purchase me a round trip back home than doing a one way. So he went ahead and purchased a a round trip ticket. I went back home. I borrowed $300 from my sister, Lorraine, and moved to New York and never looked back. So he was very influential as far as me getting to New York and to me to try to establish myself as who I am. And he believed in me during that time period uh, before his passing
0: your dad seemed to be a master of spontaneity there is a quote attributed to Lady Gaga where she was asked are you humorous she said no I'm not funny funny has to be written for me do you feel by nature you are a passionate singer performer are there nuances that are there in your presentation that weren't there in rehearsal
1: Um, well the one thing when you're live on stage that feeling that energy getting that energy helps you out as well so you're feeding off the energy of the audience. So that's giving you more motivation, more power when you're performing. But all those things as far as my life, the singing, the acting, making people laugh, that's all in me, it's all a part of me, who I am. It's always been there. So it's being able to tap into those things that's already there and to bring it to so everybody can see and witness it and be a part of that journey with you. And that's what I love about performing because you never know who's gonna react to what in what way. But we as actors and performers, when we're on stage,
0: we're feeding off
1: of what we get back from that audience member. We're feeding off that. It gives us more strength to continue even further than what we imagined that we could do.
0: Nina Simone was once asked about Janice Joplin, and her response was interesting. She said, I hope the young lady doesn't kill herself reaching down for those blue sounds. Are you ever concerned that one can leave too much on stage? It's a question I've asked of other performers, and they have differing answers.
1: I don't, I think you have to know who you are as a person, because sometimes you may not want to delve into something because of the emotions that may arise because of that. And knowing that, that strength or whatever you're going through, that weakness that you've gone through, whatever you're struggling with or had struggled with, how is it going to benefit me, and how is it going to impact the people that are watching the show? Is it just something, just another story, or is somebody going to get some a glean from that and is it going to resonate with them? I think sometimes, as far as performers, we have to take chances that other people wouldn't take for ourselves and for that show. So. I don't believe in holding back. I believe we're just going for it. And um, not necessarily to get a shock value, but to share your experiences with other people. Something may be hurting in that audience is watching your show. And you say that very word, and very phrase that they've been needing to hear all this time and they finally hear it. And they end up with a breakthrough.
0: As a gospel singer, a spiritualist, when you sing... Many performers, Frank Sinatra is the first example that pops in my mind, read his lyrics as poetry during rehearsal. As a gospel singer, do you look upon your lyrics as a prayer and the music simply as an addendum?
1: Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. The music has to resonate within your spirit and you have to feel something with it. So, you learning those words and knowing those words, those words speak to you. Because if it's not speaking to you, when you're sharing that, the audience can feel that. You're, the congregation can feel that. They're, they can feel you just singing that song. But when you actually feel what you're, what you're singing and are compassionate about what you're singing and believe the things that you are saying, that's going to resonate with everyone.
0: Have you ever had an evening, a night, an afternoon, morning when you made a presentation that was so good, you thought to yourself, it's as good as it's going to be. How do I come back and do it for the evening performance? And if you've had that feeling, how do you promulgate the instance whereby you're at the same level when you sing again?
1: Well, I think that's the thing that you're dealing with when you're dealing with live performances. Um, if you're taking those same things, if you're doing it like a person should be doing, like a run on a show, like for, for instance, five shows a week, you're still going to deal with that same thing, and you may get labs one day with one joke and the next day you don't get them with that. So you have to know who you are and the strength that you have regardless of that. So being able to know who your audience is and knowing who you are as a person, what could I give this more that could help these people understand what I'm going through? Because you know, There's not always going to be a thing where it's always a hit and it's always like this and it's always that, but you still have to know the strength within yourself and who you are as a person know that you did everything you could do to make things happen for you on that actual stage, that you put out your best for that, because you should, whether it's 200 people or 20 people or 500 people, you should put that same strength out no matter what you're doing.
0: Robert Johnson spoke about life and music as being a continuous crossroads. He also used the phrase ethnic music. When one listens to Mahalia Jackson sing Amazing Grace, there's something entirely different. There's something that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Are there places where experience is the teacher rather than vocal talent?
1: Oh, yeah. Experience and knowing that song, like I I spoke to earlier, I said about how that song or whatever you're doing should resonate with you. And then if it resonates with everyone else, everyone will feel the, the compassion that you have for that. And I think that's an important thing. Um, anybody can get up and just sing We're seeing that now as far as artists now that, that really don't have the talent, but they're making that money no matter what. Um, but I think a lot of them lack the actual true talent to where if you sing a song like Mahalia Jackson did or just resonates with everyone, everyone can feel that passion, and the power behind that, that she's not just singing a song. She's singing her life and what she's gone through, and she's, she's singing her struggle, and she's singing her pain, she's singing her sorrow, and that's what we should always do when we're performing.
0: When one talks about presenting an emotion through song, to continue that thought a bit longer, because it is fascinating in its presentation, Is there a signature song you have, Richard, that's yours? And whenever you're stuck, whenever you're bothered, whenever you're troubled, whenever you're alone, you go to it.
1: Um, It would have to be um, God Bless the Child. That's one of the songs that really resonates with me. And um, it just puts me at peace. Um, It just speaks to me. The song just speaks to me. And that's why I usually close. it. If I do a show, a lot of times I'll close my show with that actual song. Um, But that's one song I know that resonates with me and I really feel it and I understand it as far as I'm concerned. So that's something that's really, that's really pivotal in my life as far as performing that song and singing it.
0: I remember assisting my father as a young man. He worked in Bedford-Stuyvesant, the Brooklyn area, predominantly African-American, and the church ended a performance with God Bless the Child, and we stood in the rain and didn't move until it was over. There is something about a song like that being sung properly that touches the heart and soul. Yeah,
1: it's a wonderful thing.
0: It would seem that all of this would fill a panel of books, not simply one. Do you feel that we all have a book in us?
1: Oh. If anyone's had any life experiences, definitely I would I would, I would say so. But, um, we're all going through something in life, and I think we all can, whether we write it on paper or not, we can always share our life with somebody who may be going through a situation or an issue. We have it in us to be able to impart things onto people, and I think that's important.
0: What was your process in writing this book, Richard? How did you go about it?
1: My thing was putting everything, I would record everything. I'd pick something I was going to talk about, and I would just hit record and just start talking and start speaking about the situation or what I went through and what was going on during that time. And then inevitably, during that process, I would think of something else while I'm doing that, oh, that I may have forgot back, because it's hard going back in your life and looking at things you've gone through. So then I would think of something and then write it down so that I knew the next time I recorded. I was going to talk about this particular thing. So that's the process I went through with that. Um, and working with Ron Brawer, who helped me write it, I wanted it to be about my words and to sound like me talking. So it wasn't just a thing like a regular book. You could actually feel that it was Richard speaking these words, and he's talking to you about this, what he's gone
0: through. Is in a prior life then, Richard, a series of vignettes or a chronological study of a life to this point in time?
1: Definitely chronological of my life at this point in time. Yeah. It starts at my birth and I go through my my whole life and, you know, how I lived and the things I've gone through.
0: Did you write your own sermons? Yes, I did.
1: Yeah, I sure did. You know, those are things, you know, when you're reading in the Word and you're, you know, you're praying to God to give you something and, uh, you know, scripture may, may speak out to you or something like that. And, it's usually, something that you've never really heard before, or the way it's been interpreted this time is totally different than it was before. Yeah.
0: I would think that your life story speaks to anyone. One of the things we have not spoken of are the times that you experiment in female impersonations. Do you feel there really is no social or moral line? If we were to speak of God as a divine creator, there's no social or moral line in human creation, we are all the same within?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I believe we're all the same within. We're all the same. We all bleed. If you cut us, we're all going to bleed, definitely, without a doubt. You know, and to me doing people impersonation, I think a lot of times of me performing when I was doing those things, it wasn't so much of, oh, I'm just going to put on a dress to do this. It was, it was the performing factor with me. And it was something that, I had to realize which was years later that I still knew how to perform without that. It's almost using something as a crutch in order to still perform and still be in front of people. Using something as a vice in order to do it. Uh, not saying I wasn't going through certain things in my life during that time because I was. You know, when I was you know, confused about my sexuality and all those things. And not saying that everyone is like that because everyone is truly different. So those are things that I, I have to be really careful and mindful of when I speak to people, showing an imparting love on people regardless of what they're doing, regardless of how they're living, regardless of what they're doing within their life, of being able to show that love and that compassion to that person. So I think for me doing Female Impersonator was me dealing with who I am and what I saw as performing and being able to come out of my shell. Those are the reasons why I did what I did during that time.
0: When I think of your father's life, I can see him being terribly honest during a documentary, a filming of a performance. But When I think of him as an actor, I think of him laughing with Gene Wilder. If this were to be made into a movie, and there's so much within those pages that would lend itself to a film, could you play yourself?
1: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I couldn't play myself when I was younger, of course, but... I would, yeah, definitely, without a doubt. Yeah, I could, yeah. And I actually would, would, would prefer that um, because of the fact that I am an actor and a performer. I'm not just someone who wrote a book. I'm actually a performer, so being able to do that would be a wonderful thing for me.
0: Robert De Niro had that marvelous advice to people who wanted to act. He simply said, find something within you that you can always go back to if you can't find the moment, that creative moment on screen or on stage, do you feel that an actor can be totally honest? Your life is so much the ups and downs. Could you be totally frank in your presentation of self? You know, when you're
1: acting, it's just that, you're acting. You know, you, you're, you're creating a character off of words that were already presented to you. Uh, I'm sure you may be able to identify with that, but there's nothing like you going through something yourself and then putting those words on paper and in front of somebody portraying that because you've lived that. That's the authentic you. So I think, though, in that aspect, those are some easy things to actually do. But also, how, how do I identify with that character? How can you, when you're reading lines or something, you get a part or something, you always want to study that character and find out where was that person at? Who was this person? How was this person? How can I identify with this person? Do I understand what they're going through? And putting yourself in that position with that when you're playing that role. And I think that's when you get the authentic performance.
0: Is there a volume two that's waiting to be written? It's rattling around someplace in your creative nature?
1: Oh definitely, without a doubt. I have so much more to say as far as my life and what I've gone through and how I've persevered. Definitely so much
0: more. Are there things that you still have not done that you dream about doing, or at least attempting?
1: Not so much. The only thing I, I would want to do out of life is to be able to move to an area where it's nice all year long. That would be <laughs> my. <laughs> that would be the main thing, and being able to, you know, take care of myself and my family. My bills are paid. If my bills are paid, and, and I can, those are things that I want to do. And I'm going, you know, those are things that I think about. You know, where can I live? Are my bills paid? Can I help anybody? That's all I want out of life.
0: We're within one minute of what has proven to be an incredible conversation, Richard. Is there any last tidbit of advice you want to share with the listening audience, especially with that vulnerable individual out there who's trying to learn something from your own travails?
1: Um, I would say what you're going through at this moment is not going to last. Those troubles, that strife, those pains, um, all those things are just temporary. Keep going. Keep persevering. Keep moving forward in your life. Keep doing it regardless of what people tell you and how people treat you, how they feel about you. Know your worth and know who you are as a human being. And keep moving. Never stop. Never, ever stop.
0: Richard, I would hope you can stay online for a few minutes. I'm going to sign off and then speak in a personal matter with you. This has been Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Our special guest has been Richard Pryor, Jr. Be with us again.